And now, a CFNC reading of War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orison Wells and Mercury Theater on the air in the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. <laughs> gentlemen, the director of Mercury Theater and the star of these broadcasts, Orison Welles. We all know that in the early years of the 20th century, the world was being watched over closely by intelligences greater than man's, and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as man with a microscope might scrutinize the transcendent creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro, over the earth and on their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their domination over the small spinning fragment of the solar driftwood which, by chance of design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet across the immense ethereal gulf, minds are to our minds, that ours are to the beast of the jungle. Intellects vast, cool, unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 39th year of the 20th century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business was better. The worst scare was over. More men were back to work. Sales were picking up, and on this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening to the radios. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature, 66. Minimum, 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We take you now to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you'll be entertained by the music of Ramon Raquello and his orchestra. Gentlemen, from the Meriden Room in the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City, we bring you the music of Ramon Raquel and his orchestra. With a touch of the Spanish, Ramon Raquel leads off with La Cumparista. <laughs> gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 Central Time, Professor Farewell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas. 
occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving towards the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Roqueo playing for you in the Vernon room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. And now a tune that never loses favor, the ever-popular Stardust, Ramon Raqueo and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following the news given on our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories in the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of the occurrence, we have arranged an interview noted with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give his views on the event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory at Princeton, New Jersey. We return you until then to the music of Ramon Riqueo and his orchestra. Ready now to take you to the Pierce, uh, Princeton Observatory at Princeton, where Carl Phillips, our commentator, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Princeton, New Jersey. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is Carl Phillips, speaking to you now from the observatory at Princeton. I'm standing here in a large semicircular room, pitch black, except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Uh, through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of a huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly in front of me on a small platform, peering through the giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during the delay that may arise during the interviews. Besides, with this ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by a telephone or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may we begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor, uh, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through the telescope? Nothing at the moment, Mr. Phillips. A red disk swimming in the blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk, quite distant now, because Mars happens to be at the point nearest Earth, in the opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, uh, what do the transverse stripes signify, Professor? Uh, not canals, I assure you, Mr. Phillips. Oh, I see. Although the most popular conjecture for those who imagine Mars is to be in uninhabited. From a purely scientific standpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions particular to the planet. Then you're quite convinced as a scientist that living intelligence as we know does not exist on Mars? 
I say the chances of anything like that are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for those gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet in regular intervals as we speak? Mr. Phillips, I cannot account for that. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. Well, that seems like quite a safe distance. Uh, just a moment, ladies and gentlemen. Someone has handed Professor Pearson a message. Uh, while he reads it, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the viewpoint of the Princeton Observatory in New Jersey, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. Oh, one moment, please. Professor Pearson has passed me a message which he has just received. Professor, may I read the message aloud to those listening to the audience? Sorry, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read to you a wire addressed to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray at the National, National History Museum in New York. Quote, Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Please investigate. Signed, Dr. Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Unquote. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observing the planet Mars? Hardly, Mr. Phillips. It's probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely coincidence. However, we shall conduct a search as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past 10 minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to New York Studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from Intercontinental Radio News, Toronto, Canada. Professor Morris of Macmillan University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports receiving from American observatories. Now near home comes a special bulletin from Trenton, New Jersey. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible with a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far, as, as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word picture of the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Marionette in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett on his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. We take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again, out on the Wilmer Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11-mile trip from Princeton in just 10 minutes. Well, I, I hardly know how to begin. To paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes. It's like something in modern Arabian Nights. Well, I just got here and I haven't had a chance to look around yet, but I guess that's it. Yes, I, I guess that is the thing directly there in front of me. Half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree that must have been struck on the way down. But all I can see here is the object itself does not look to be very much bigger than a meteor. At least it doesn't look like a meteor I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of... What would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? Uh, what would you say? Uh, the diameter of this. Oh, about 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal... Uh, on, on, well, the metal sheaf is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white, 
Curious spectators are now pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts by the police to keep them back. Uh, they're getting in front of my line of vision. Would you mind staying out of the way, please? One side, Thea, one side! While the police are pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Wilmoth, owner of the, tr of the, of the farm here. Uh, he made some interesting facts to add. Mr. Wilmoth, uh, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you can remember about this particular incident here uh, and, and uh, this rather unusual visitor you say, Doctor, in your backyard? Step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Wilmoth. Well, I was just listening to the radio. Uh, closer and louder, please. Pardon me. Uh, louder, please, and, and closer. Yes, sir. I was just listening to the radio and kind of drowsing. That professor fellow was talking about Mars, so I was half dozen and half. Yes, yes, Mr. Wolf. And uh, what happened? Well, as I was saying, I was listening to the radio kind of halfways. Yes, Mr. Wilmoth. Uh, and then you saw something? Not first off. I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound. Like, like this. <laughs> kind of like a 4th of July rocket. Okay, yes, and then what? I turned my head out the window and would have swore I was to sleep and dreaming. Yes? I seen kind of greenish streak and then zinga. Something smacked the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Wolf? Well, I, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I, I was kind of riled. Thank you, Mr. Wolf. Uh, thank you very much. Want me to tell you some more? Uh, no, that's quite all right. That's plenty. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you just heard from Mr. Wolf, the owner of the farm, uh, where this all has been taking place. Uh, I wish I could survey the atmosphere and, and convey it better, but the background of this, it's a fantastic scene. Uh, hundreds of cars are parked up on the field in the back of us, and the police are trying to keep the rope off the roadway, uh, leading up to the farm, but it's no use. Uh, they're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object is half buried. Uh, now, some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the object, uh, near its edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to touch the thing. Uh, he's having an argument with a policeman. The policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but it's becoming quite distinct. Perhaps you're already caught on this radio, but listen, please. Do you hear it? There's a curious humming sound that seems to be coming from inside the object. I'll move the microphone closer now. Uh, n now we're no more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, Professor Pearson. Yes, Mr. Phillips. Uh, can you tell me the meaning of all the scraping noise that we're hearing inside this thing? It's possibly an unequal cooling on the surface. Uh, I see. Could it possibly be a meter, Mr. Professor? Uh, I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial, not found on this earth. Uh, friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in the meteorite. Uh, this thing is smooth, and uh, as you can see, it's cylindrical shape. Just a minute, something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. The end of this thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw. The thing must be must be hollow. She's moving! Look at the darn things unscrewing! Stay back there! Keep those men back, I tell ya! Maybe there's men in it trying to escape. It's red hot, they'll burn to a cinder. Keep back there, keep those idiots back! She's off the top's loose! Look out there! Stand back! Ladies and gentlemen, there's the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute, something's crawling out the top of it. Someone or, or something, I I can see it peering out of the top of the black hole like two luminous discs. Are they eyes? It might be a face. It might be... Whoa. Good heavens, something's wriggling out of the shadow of... Out of the shadows like a gray snake. Now there's another one. And another. And another. They look like tentacles to me. I can see the whole thing's body now. It's large. Large as a bear and it glistens in the wet weather like wet lever, but the face, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it, it's so awful. 
The eyes are black and they gleam like a serpent. The mouth is a V-shape of saliva dripping out from the rimless lips that uh, seem to quiver and pulsate. The monster, or whatever it is, it can hardly move. It seems to be weighed down, possibly by gravity or something. The thing's, it's rising up now. The crowd falls back. They've seen plenty. It's an extraordinary experience, ladies and gentlemen. I can't find words. I'll pull the microphone with me as long as I can talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can get a new position. Hold on, will you please? We'll be right back in a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Wilmoth Farm, Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We now return you to Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill. Ladies and gent, am I on? Ladies and gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, here we are. I am back behind a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Wilmoth's garden. Uh, from here, I can get a sweep of the entire scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk and as long as I can see. It seems like more state police have arrived and they're drawing off a cordon in front of the pit. About 30 of them. Uh, no need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to move back without assistance and keep their distance. The captain is confirmed with somebody. I can't quite see who. Oh, yes. I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Uh, they seem to have parted. Uh, and now Professor Pearson moves off to the side, studying the object. While the captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can't see it right now. Oh, it appears to be a white handkerchief tied on a pole. A flag of truce. These creatures know what that means. What anything means. Wait a minute. Something's happening. <laughs> Pump shape seems to be rising out of the pit. I, I can make it a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing up from the mirror. It leaps right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Oh, good lord, they're turning into flame. And now the whole field's on fire. The woods, the barns, the tanks of automobiles. It's spraying everywhere. It's coming this way. About 20 miles to my right. It's going to be. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from Grover's Mill. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Endelkoffer, speaking at the dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We continue now with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been handed a message that came in from Grover's Mill by telephone. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six street troopers, lie dead on the field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Trenton, New Jersey. Thank you. I've been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer and Middlesex as far as Princeton and as far east as Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by the state and military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and will aid in the evacuation of homes in the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any content with our mobile unit at Grover's Mill. 
but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you to just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill, where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson. Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information. Neither of their existence of their nature, their origin, or of the purposes on Earth. Of the destructive instrument, I might only venture some conjecture explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as the heat ray. It is all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own, and it is my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute no conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object that they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. It is my conjecture at the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here's a bulletin from Trenton. It is a brief statement informing us about the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in Trenton Hospital. Now there's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. The Office of the Director of the National Red Cross Report 10 Unit of the Red Cross Emergency Workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia stationed outside Groversville, New Jersey. Here, a bulletin from state police. Princeton Junction. The fires at Groversville and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there are no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request from the state militia at Trenton to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Trenton. We take you now to the field headquarters of the state militia near Groversville, New Jersey. This is Captain Lansing of the Signal Corps. Attached to the state militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of Groversville. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object, which lies in a pit directly below our position, is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry. With our heavy field pieces, but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such cause ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, do not even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I can see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. It's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering the Milestone River. Probably fire started by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it'll all be over. That's what she said. Now, wait a minute. I see something on the top of the cylinder. No, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops are on the edge of the Wilmoth farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. A tow brother! Wait, that wasn't a shadow. It's something moving, solid, metal. Kind of a shield-like affair rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. 
Why, it's standing on legs! Actually rearing up on some sort of metal framework! Now it's reaching above the trees! And the searchlights are on it! Hold on! Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle, which took place tonight at Grover's Mill, has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by any army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burnt to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey, and has effectively cut the state through its center. Communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allentown and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive adversary with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. Mic drop. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We are informed the central portion of New Jersey is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bulletin, New York. Cables have been received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voice the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Langenfield, Virginia. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north towards Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use, although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Baskin Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled upon a second cylinder similar to the first embedded in the Great Swamp 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up second invading unit 
before a cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. They are taken up a position in the foothills of watching mountains. Another bulletin from Langenfield, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed, nor worth kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of Plainfield. Here is a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. A fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep the speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please, ladies and gentlemen. We've, uh, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take it to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Watching Mountains. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters! Projection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees! Fire! <laughs> 140 yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters! Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees! Fire! A hit, sir. We got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift 30 meters. 30 meters! Projection, 37 degrees. 27 degrees! Fire! Can't see the shell land, sir. They're letting off a smoke. What is it? A black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Lying close to the ground. It's moving fast. Put on gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift 24 meters. 24 meters! Tradition 24 degrees. 24 degrees! Four! Still can't see, sir. The smoke's coming near. Get the range! <laughs> 23 meters! <laughs> uh, 23 meters! <laughs> 23 meters! <laughs> Twenty-two degrees. Army bombing plane V843 off Bayo, New Jersey. Lieutenant Boyd commanding eight bombers, reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. This is Vaught reporting to Commander Fairfax, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now commanding site, reinforced by three machines in the Morristown cylinder, six altogether. The machine partially crippled. Believed hit by a shell from army gun in Wachung Mountains. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to those on Earth. Of extreme density, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing Pasic River into the New Jersey marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident objective is New York City. They are pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together and we're ready to attack. Plane circling, ready to strike, a thousand yards, and we'll be over the first 800 yards, 600, 400, 200. There they go, a giant arm raised. A green flash, they're spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet, engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs, only one thing left. Drop on them, plane and all. We're diving on the first one. Now engine's gone, eight. New Jersey calling Langham Field. This is Bayon, New Jersey calling Langham Field. Come in, please. This is Langham Field. Go ahead. Eight Army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod matches over Jersey Flats. Engines uh, incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging a heavy black smoke in direction of. This is Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning. Poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas mass useless. Urge population to move into the open spaces. Automobiles use Route 7, 23, 24. 
Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over Raymond Boulevard. This is 2x2L calling CQ. 2x2L calling CQ. 2x2L calling 3x3R. Come in, please. This is 8x3R coming back in 2x2L. House reception. House reception. K, please. Where are you, 8x3R? What's the matter? Where are you? I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. I'm speaking from the roof of Broadcasting Building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn people to evacuate the city as Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchinson River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island, hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed 10 minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding services here below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the harbor. All manners of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute. The the enemy's now in sight. But the Palisades. Five, f five great machines. First one is crossing the river. I can see it from here. Waiting the Hudson like a man waiting through a brook. A bullet in his hand at me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside Buffalo. One in Chicago, St. Louis, seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. His steel, cowlish head is even with the skyscrapers. He awaits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running towards the East River. Thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue? Uh, 100 yards away. It's 50 feet. Two by two L calling CQ. Two by two L calling CQ. Two by two L calling CQ. Newark. Isn't there anyone on the air? Is there anyone out there on the air? Is anyone left? Two by two L. You're listening to a CBS presentation of Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on air in an original dramatization of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. The performance will continue after a brief intermission. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. As I set down these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the fact that I might be the last living man on Earth. 
I've been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by black smoke from the rest of the world. All that has happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present, future existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down on my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tired clothes, and I try to connect them with a professor who lives in Princeton, and who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through his telescope at an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my my world. Where are they? Do they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Oh, do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? I'm writing down my daily life. I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book, which I am meant to record the last movements of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. So I find moldy bread in the kitchen, and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. From time to time, I catch sight of Martians above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in a dark coil, but, but at length there is a hissing sound, and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet stream, as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in the corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. Morning. Sun streams through the window. The black cloud of gas has lifted, and the scorched meadows at the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make way up to the road. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car. Baggage overturned. A blackened skeleton. I push north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them, and I keep a careful watch. I've seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear on top of the trees, I am ready to fling myself flat on the earth. I come through chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. I fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vaguely northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally I notice a living creature, a small red squirrel on a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder, and he stares back at me. I believe that the movement of the animal and I shared the same emotion, the joy of finding another living being. I push north. I find dead cows on a blackened field, and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy, the silo remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse deserted from the sea. Astride the silo perches a weathercock. The arrow points north. Next day, I come to the city, a city vaguely familiar by its contours, yet its buildings are strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a sweep of its hand. I reach the outskirts. I found Newark, undemolished, but humbled by some whim of advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step toward it. It rose up and became a man. A man, armed with a large knife. Stop! Where do you come from? I come from, from many places. A long time ago, from Princeton. Princeton, huh? That's your Grover's Mill. Well, I guess it is. Grover's Mill. Ha 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 ha! There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down to the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for... for people. What was that? Did you hear something just then? No. Only a bird. A live bird! Yeah. You gotta get to know that birds have shadows these days. Hey, we're in the open here. 
Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? Nah. They've gone over to New York. At night, the sky is alive with their lights, just as if people are living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Then it's all over for humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. Yeah, they got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You were in a uniform. Yeah, what's left of it. I was in the militia. National Guard? <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war. Any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we're, we're eatable ants. And I found that out. What do they do with us? I've thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic-like. Keeping the best and storing us in cages. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun! All this happened so far is because we don't have the sense enough to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff. And losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now instead of our rushing crowds around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilizations, progress. Done. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years, so no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's, if it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life. That's what I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated, and I don't mean to be caught neither. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on, right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men are finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we've got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free while we learn, see? I thought it all out, see? Tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. And that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All these little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. They used to run, run off to work. I see hundreds of them running to catch their commuter's train in the, in the morning afraid they'd be canned if they didn't. Running back at night afraid they won't be home in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays, worried about the hereafter, the Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding. That's what she said! No worries. Yeah, after a week or so chasing about the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad we to be caught. You've thought this all out now, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians, they're going to make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows? Sentimental over a pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah. Some. Maybe they'll hunt and train us. Now that's impossible. No human being. Yes, they will. There's men who will do it gladly. 
if one of them ever comes after me, why? In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth? I've got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers under New York. There are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody. And there are cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see. We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weak ones. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go? Well, I give you a chance, didn't I? We won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we've got to make a safe place for both of us to stay and see. We got all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you and me come in, see? We'll raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. It may not be so much we have to learn before. Listen, just imagine this four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men! <laughs> men who've learned the way how it may even be in our time. Gee, imagine having one of them lovely things in a heat ray wide and free. We'd turn it on Martians. We'd turn it on men. We'd bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan? Yeah. You, me, and a few more of us. We'd own the world. I see. Hey, hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. Well, after parting with the artillerymen, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel. I entered that silent tube anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up to Canal Street. I reached 14th Street, and there again were the black powder and several bodies, and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings in the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered through the 30s and the 40s. I stood alone in Times Square. I caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in its jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at its heels. He made a wide circle around me, as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. I walked up Broadway in the direction of that strange powder, past silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks, past the Capitol Theater, silent and dark, past the shooting gallery, where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Columbus Circle, I noticed models of a 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. From over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of dark birds circling the sky, and I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine, staying somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea! I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I climbed up a small hill above a pond at 6th Street, and from there I could see, standing in the silent row along the mall, 19 of those metal titans, with their cowls empty and their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that were hovering directly below me. They circled to the ground, and there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians, with the hungry birds pecking and tearing down brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in the laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were not prepared. Slain, after all the man's defenses had failed, by the humblest thing that God and his wisdom has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general thought that space contained no life. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I've conned up in my mind of life spreading slowly from the little seed bed of our solar system throughout the inanimate vastness 
of cerebral space. But that's a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve. To them, and not to us, is the future ordained, perhaps. Strange it now seems to sit on my peaceful study in Princeton, writing down the last chapter of this record that began on a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green, where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of the bruised earth. Strange to watch sightseers enter the museum where the disassembled parts of the Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it, bright and clean-cut, hard and silent, under the dawn of the last great day. This is Orson Welles, ladies and gentlemen. Out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it is intended to be. The Mercury Feeder's own radio version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush to say boo. We couldn't slip up all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow morning, so we did the next best thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly destroyed the CBS. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we did not mean it, and both institutions are still open for business. So goodbye, everybody, and remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you've learned tonight. The grinning, glowing, globular invader of your living room is an inhabitant of your pumpkin patch, and your doorbell rings and no one's there. There was no Martian. It's Halloween! <laughs>